This is Harold the Scarecrow, and when I'm not hanging around scaring birds or skinning people alive, I'm listening to the I Wanna Party with Bob Bobcast. Welcome to episode 107 of the I Wanna Party with Bob Bobcast. Welcome to a very scary edition of the I Wanna Party with Bob Bobcast. Yes, in this episode, we are going to be talking all about scary stories to tell in the dark. The book series, not the movie. Well, the movie a little. You'll see that part's coming up in a little bit. I'm excited about how we are going to talk about the movie in this episode, by the way. For now, let me tell you a little of what this episode is all about. We're going to take a fairly close look at the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books and the author of those books, Alvin Schwartz. We're going to take a look at Stephen Gamble, the artist of the Scary Story series of books, which, by the way, the art of Stephen Gamble really seems to have made a very strong and very lasting impression on a lot of people. Even more than the stories themselves, I believe. Those drawings in the original book, they really messed people up and stuck with them from childhood into adulthood. We're going to talk a little bit about the stories themselves. I've picked three of my favorite stories from the books, which we'll discuss a little bit. And you're going to get to hear a retelling of one of those stories from one of the scary stories to tell in the dark series of books that I'm going to tell you in my own way in the Bobcast way. Yeah, so definitely stay tuned for that. The last thing we're going to talk about is the controversy that surrounded the Scary Story series of books. PTA organizations, nervous and helicopter parents, the religious right, those are some examples of people who did not want their children or any children reading these books. Right now, though, I would like to introduce a fairly new feature of the Bobcast to you. There's already been one of these features. It didn't have a name at the time, but what's coming up is going to be a regular monthly feature on the Bobcast. It's got a very simple title, The Celluloid Catacombs, starring or with Carolyn Morissette. It's a movie review segment by my friend and also an incredibly talented person, and her name is, you guessed it, Carolyn Morissette. So easy. If this was a pop quiz, you would have gotten 100%. Some quick background on Carolyn. She was the guest of honor on Bobcast episode 68 back in August of 2020. Carolyn is a Rotten Tomatoes certified film critic. She's the development coordinator, a programmer, and member of the board of directors for the Blood in the Snow Film Festival that's held annually in Toronto, Canada. Carolyn regularly contributes and writes for Rue Morgue Magazine, which is the best horror magazine in the world. There's so much more to Carolyn. The best way you can learn more about her, if you're curious, is just go to viewfromthedark.ca and read the About section on that webpage for all of the details, all the goods on Carolyn. A link to that webpage will be up on this episode's page of the Bobcast website. By the way, Carolyn is coming at us in this episode with her review of the scary stories to tell in the dark movie that was released in 2019. Here's Carolyn. Hey everyone, it's time for another trip to the celluloid catacombs with Carolyn. 
So since Bob is tackling the very interesting story of Alvin Schwartz's scary stories to tell in the Dark Book series, I thought I would cover the screen adaptation done in 2019. Taking the beloved books by Alvin Schwartz and creating three-dimensional versions of the spindly, spine-tingling drawings by Steve and Gamble, you would think a horror movie for younger fans would be easy, right? And in the hands of producer and master of the fantastical, Guillermo del Toro and director Andre Uverdahl, who made the brilliant Troll Hunter and the autopsy of Jane Doe, this can only be brilliant too, right? But first, let's get into the synopsis. It's 1968 in the town of Mill Valley, Pennsylvania, and it's Halloween. Stella is a nerdy tween who loves to write and is getting ready to head out with her best friends, Chuck and Augie. They have a particular target in mind by the name of Tommy Milner for a Halloween trick. He's the town jock and resident bully, followed around by his letterman cronies. When they pull a way too successful prank on Tommy, Stella, Chuck, and Augie are chased into a local drive-in and seek refuge in a car owned by a handsome stranger named Ramon. Ramon stands up for the kids and takes them up on their offer to visit a local haunted house. There is a mystery behind this house and the Bellows family who owned it. They had a daughter who was nicknamed Strange Sarah. She would tell scary stories to the town's kids, some of whom went missing. Accused of killing those kids, Sarah hung herself. When Stella finds Sarah's storybook, she takes the dusty volume home, only to find that the ghost of Sarah is writing new stories and the main characters are people from the town. Stella, Chuck, Augie, and Ramon must figure out this terrible curse before the people they care about most are killed. So, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark stars Zoe Margaret Coletti as Stella, Michael Garza as Ramon, Gabriel Rush as Augie, Austin Zager as Chuck, Austin Abrams as Tommy Milner, and Jill Bellows as Chief Turner. So that's just a general synopsis because there's a lot more that happens in the film. And after watching this movie again, there's a line that really hits home to describe all of this. A terrified Stella says that you don't read the book, the book reads you. Well, maybe the book should have held the scriptwriter's nose to the script shouting, no, bad writer, bad. Seriously, though, adapting a book to the screen is no small feat, but this could have used a reworking. The film's producer, Del Toro, wrote the story along with two other people, Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan, who wrote The Collector and The Collection, a couple of my favorite flicks. And the screenplay was written by Dan and Kevin Hageman, the people behind the Lego movie and Hotel Transylvania. With so many cooks, it's not a surprise the outcome was a convoluted way of telling the classic horror stories, and quite frankly, I expected more from two horror experts like Del Toro and Uverdahl. The wraparound story of Stella with Sarah's book would have served the film better if, say, it was an entirely different wraparound story. There's also a magical Negro, a Ringu ripoff, and too much going on to make the story coherent. And anything with Gil Bellows is suspect. Fight me on that because I've seen that movie, Goblin. What I did love was that they stuck to Gamble's art for all the nightmarish ghouls they encounter, since I read that one of the editions of Scary Stories used a new artist. I also liked that as each story was written in Sarah's book, they were written in blood, and the words appeared on their own before our eyes. Some of the more popular stories like Harold, The Big Toe, The Red Spot, and The Dream are all covered, and I do have to say the spot segment gave me the willies with the whole spider coming out of the cheek thing. The kid actors were all good too, especially Garza who plays Ramon and his angelic face. 
The production took place in Hamilton, Ontario, which is like the Detroit of Ontario, Canada. I don't know if you all know this, but Del Toro loves Canada. He has a home in Toronto and has gone on the record about how much he loves the city of Hamilton. I have a great love for him and his artistry, just not this time. I think I hold an unpopular opinion since a lot of people seem to love the film adaptation of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, but here's the thing. I worked in a library for a long, long time, and I remember those book covers. I remember reading those books when I was a kid. This version of the classic books don't honor the purpose of the collection, which was to preserve folklore. Schwartz painstakingly researched these stories, and to see this treated like a pulpy summer blockbuster is a little disappointing. I also don't get why it was set in the 60s. Overdahl wanted a social commentary, but I'm not sure the outcome made a lot of sense. What he did show is a girl facing her fears, and most kids do that when they read a scary story. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Carolyn, for the celluloid catacombs in this episode of the Bobcast. That movie, uh, not so great. I only saw it once. I tried to watch it again. I couldn't find my DVD, so I was out of luck before I did this episode. But yeah, not so great. I expected better from Guillermo del Toro, for sure. Moving on, you can catch Carolyn Morissette and the celluloid catacombs here on the Bobcast once a month. Also, please check out some of Carolyn's many other incredible ventures via that viewfromthedark.ca website. As I mentioned earlier, the music of this episode, it is all provided by one band, and that band is called Voodoo Sister. They're from Providence, Rhode Island. The music of this episode is absolutely perfect because in the words of Keith McCurdy, that's the main songwriter person of the band, the songs you're going to hear are more or less based on or at least inspired by the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books. So perfect. The music is really amazing. Thanks so much to Keith McCurdy and Voodoo Sister. Besides this awesome music that you're going to hear mixed in between the Scary story stuff, we'll also be hearing from some fiends of the Bobcast talking about how the Scary Stories books affected them when they were kids. Kind of eyewitness statements, testimonials, that type of thing. In this case, maybe some of them are reliving past traumas. I don't know, and I unfortunately brought those back for them. These books really do leave a lasting impression on you, I believe, especially the original artwork by Stephen Gamble. And that's kind of a common theme through all these people's stories. So definitely keep an ear out for those stories. They're going to come at you kind of here and there scattered throughout the episode. There is one thing I do definitely need to mention that influenced the creation of this episode for sure. A documentary made by Cody Merrick is simply titled Scary Stories. The documentary is absolutely amazing. Anything I can do in this episode does kind of pale in comparison, I believe, because it's very thorough. It's very incredible. And this Scary Stories, the documentary, it really kind of covers it all. It talks about Alvin Schwartz, Stephen Gamel, the art, the stories, the history, the controversy, everything. You should watch this documentary. It definitely did influence me in making a decision to do the work on this episode and put it out. I'd be lying if I said otherwise. So I do want to tell you, watch the Scary Stories documentary, okay? Well, let's move on. Before we hear a song and head into the episode proper, though, I am rather parched. So why don't we do the... 
of the episode. Yes, the scarily good beer for this Scary Stories episode is none other than the Hydro Zombies Hazy IPA from Plan 9 Alehouse. This hazy IPA is brewed with Hydra hops and is supposed to have notes of tangerine, white gummy bears, and tropical fruit. Sounds a little bit like a vacation in a can to me. Well, let's try this beer and see if it can raise the dead of my taste buds. Damn, that's good. It is rather fruity. God, it's so not bitter. Like the fruitiness more or less outweighs the bitterness. Very mild aftertaste. Uh, Plan 9 really, really knows how to make an IPA because they don't make these overwhelmingly bitter and kind of nasty tasting IPAs. You know, these like an, just hop fest of nastiness type of IPAs that there are so many of out there. This is a good one. Really smooth, really clean in its own way. Fruity tasting, very little aftertaste. Very, there is a slight bitterness. I'm getting it right now. A tiny bit, but it's so much milder than your average IPA. It's a hazy IPA, so it is a little different than your regular old IPA. God, that is a really good beer. You can enjoy this beer and many other fine beers by visiting Plan 9 Alehouse at 155 East Grand Avenue in downtown Escondido, California. You can reach Plan 9 Alehouse by phone at 760-489-8817 or visit them on the web at plan9alehouse.com. Plan 9 Alehouse, beer so good, it will definitely hook you in. Get it? The hook, yes. Here we go. Here's Voodoo Sister with the song, He Heard Footsteps Coming Up the Cellar Stairs. He's got a body worse than how he's dressed. Gets his chores all done and he cleans his mess. Got a white face, love. Thank you. 
I am so excited to talk about scary stories to tell in the dark. Versions 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> so I don't even really know where to begin other than these books are iconic. Not only are the stories iconic, but let's be real, it was Stephen Gamble's artwork that made those books legendary. <laughs> to this day, those images and that artwork creeps me out and is the stuff of nightmares. I really think that those books were such a turning point and almost foundation for so many of us adults. And I'm glad to see, I don't know if it's just from now, us adults who enjoy those books as children, that we now have our own children, that we're sharing those books with them, or if it's thanks to the internet or whatever, I don't really care. I'm just glad to know that younger current generations are getting to enjoy that artwork and those books currently. I mean, I can vividly remember sitting in my room with my friend and we had the lights off and the flashlight under our chins and we would read the stories. Well, more like I read the stories and I would act them out and my friend would be terrified and it was great. But yeah, I mean, I don't know where so many of us would be without those books. And that sounds so silly to say, but I think really those books instilled a love of all things creepy and spooky in so many of us and I just love it because it's one of my favorite genres ever. I love being scared. I love the psychology behind scary stories and being afraid and facing those fears and yeah I mean oh those books are amazing. We're back up from the cellar. Here we go with part one. Let's talk about Alvin Schwartz the author of the scary stories to tell in the dark series. Alvin Schwartz was born on April 25th, 1927 in Brooklyn, New York. Alvin attended City College of New York from 1944 to 1945. Then he joined the Navy in 1945. He ended up getting his bachelor's degree in journalism from Colby College of Waterville, Maine in 1949. And finally, his master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University of Evanston, Illinois in 1951. In 1951, Alvin began his career as a journalist working as a newspaper reporter for the Binghampton Press in New York State until 1955. After 1955, Schwartz worked as a director of communications for the Opinion Research Corporation of Princeton, New Jersey until 1964 when he truly began his career as a freelance writer. Alvin Schwartz wrote more than 50 books in his lifetime. That's a lot of books. Think about it. I feel like if you can write one or two books worth of material in your entire life, you're doing pretty good. The subjects of the books that Schwartz wrote dealt with everything from public relations to fatherhood to how retail stores operated. That's right. He wrote a whole book about the functions of a retail store for school-aged kids so they could get an understanding of how things worked when they went into, like, a Woolworths and bought a toy or something like that. Most notably, of course, 
or Schwartz's books about folklore and the stories that have been handed down through the years via oral tradition. Obviously, that's what we're here to talk about and focus on. I do want to point that out. But Schwartz did write all kinds of really, I would say, fun books. He wrote joke books. He wrote about tall tales, superstitions, tongue twisters. He really wrote about some very fun stuff, especially for kids. I'll tell you one of my favorite Alvin Schwartz books, other than the Scary Story series. It's called Ghosts, Ghostly Tales from Folklore. The Ghosts was published in 1991. It's an absolutely amazing book. It was definitely written for little kids, but the stories in Ghosts are solid and actually kind of scary. Just like so many folk tales, myths, and urban legends tend to be scary. Just like the types of stories you'll find in the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books. Now that we've established when Alvin Schwartz began writing and a little bit of what he wrote, what types of books he wrote, what about why he wrote books about folklore? That's really my main question about Schwartz kind of going into this episode, why he wrote the books he did and kind of how he went from being a reporter, a journalist, to writing books about folklore. Here's a quote from an interview with Alvin Schwartz in 1987. This is from volume 64, number four of a publication titled Language Arts. And I'm quoting Alvin Schwartz directly here. Well, I've always been interested in wordplay. I decided I was going to pursue this. I did a book of tongue twisters and in the process of collecting this material, being a journalist, I naturally decided to find some expert resources. I determined who the president of the American Folklore Society was and I called him up. He happened to be in the folklore department at the University of Pennsylvania, actually, and I've used that department ever since as a resource. He has followed my work and has been very helpful. Many folklorists across the country have also been cooperative. That's what happened. The first book was a national bestseller. My feeling was, my goodness, if this is the response, I certainly must pursue this. And that's what happened. And I think the book he's referring to is A Twister of Twists, A Tangler of Tongues, which was published in 1972. That, I think, is the first book that he mentions in that interview. So it was money and success that eventually led to the creation of the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series, which is absolutely not a bad thing. In fact, it's really great. Had Alvin Schwartz not succeeded with that first book, we may have never gotten the Scary Stories series of books. By the way, the interview that I quoted back there, it's absolutely amazing. Really a great interview. I found it online. You can too. I will post a link to this article on the Bobcast website page for this episode. A couple more things about Alvin Schwartz. I just mentioned that interview with Schwartz, and by doing that, alluded to the research that I had done for this episode in some ways, right? Alvin Schwartz did a huge amount of research for every single book that he wrote. You'd kind of think he wouldn't have to in some ways. You know, take some folk tales, take some urban legends, some ghost stories that maybe you heard here and there. There you go. Voila. Instant book. Super easy. No, Alvin Schwartz had so much integrity when it came to writing, and that carried over into his books, obviously. An example of the research and writing process for Schwartz is this. Alvin Schwartz wrote a bunch of books in the I Can Read series, and those are for little kids. 
the ghost book that I mentioned a little bit earlier, that is one of those I can read books. It's meant for grades one through three. The book is 63 pages long, Ghosts is, and it's mostly pictures with very large text. And honestly, that book would have been around maybe two or three pages long if it was in an adult type of book with no pictures, regular size font or text or whatever. It'd be incredibly short, but it gets stretched out to 63 pages. It's for very young readers, big letters, really cool, bright, flashy, interesting pictures, that kind of thing. Well, Schwartz would first research the subject of whatever book he was writing for around three months, and he would usually do that at the Firestone Library of Princeton University. He only lived a half mile from that library, and he would end up doing most of his research there. Schwartz actually said one of the main reasons that he lived in Princeton, New Jersey, was because that's where this particular library was located. So after the research was done, he'd start writing the book which would take another three months. And why would it take so long for him to write so few words? This is why he'd write the stories, then he'd sit in his bathroom and read the stories out loud to himself three or four times. He said he liked the acoustics in that bathroom. After he heard the stories out loud, he would make corrections and rewrite parts that didn't sound right, and then he'd go back in the bathroom and do it all over again. Why was it so important to Alvin Schwartz that the stories sounded good when they were read out loud? They're books for reading, right? You read in your head. You don't typically read a book out loud. Alvin Schwartz's books, according to him, were meant to be told. They were meant to be read out loud to an audience. How many of the stories in the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books end with, now grab the person closest to you and say, you have it, or something like that, right? That's from a few of the stories, and those are the golden arm type of stories that are in all three volumes of the Scary Stories series. We're going to talk about that golden arm thing in part two, by the way. So yeah, Schwartz felt like the stories were going to be told out loud, and the way the words sounded was very important to him. So we've established how Alvin Schwartz wrote and why he started writing about folklore, which is what led to the creation of the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series, 1981 was when the very first volume in the series was published, then part two in 1984, finally the last book in the series, part three in 1991. Alvin Schwartz very sadly died of lymphoma in Princeton, New Jersey on March 14th, 1992, very shortly before what would have been his 65th birthday. He is survived by his wife and four children. At 64, that's not that old. It really is kind of too bad that he passed so soon. At least he left behind such an incredible treasure trove of books for us to enjoy, and that's a good thing. It really is. That's about all I want to say about Alvin Schwartz for now. If you'd like to know more about him, I would highly recommend the Scary Stories documentary. That's got a very in-depth look at him personally, his kind of personal life, his family life. I didn't want to get too much into that just because it's all out there in that documentary. Another thing worth mentioning, if you'd like to know more details about the research and the sources that Alvin Schwartz used for the scary stories to tell in the dark tales, just crack the books and look in the back. Because, oh my God, the last quarter of every scary stories to tell in the dark series of books, it's all Schwartz's notes. There are three sections, usually notes, sources, and a bibliography. 
I'm telling you, Alvin Schwartz was very thorough in his research. Let's move on. Now, let's talk about Stephen Gamble, the artist of the Scary Story series, at least the artist of the editions that matter. I came across Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark while I was attending Catholic school. For some reason, we had them in our library, and I could not put them down. They terrified me to no end, but at the same time, I was just so into the dark of it, the darkness of it. And the illustrations were so scary to me, so terrifying. And I still believe to this day they are very terrifying to see. And I'm not sure how they were marketed towards children. But these images left a very lasting impact on me. And I always thought that the creatures or the illustrations in the book would come to life and steal me or pull on my foot while I was sleeping. And yeah, that's the impact it's had on me. And recently, I just purchased my own copies of the books for my own personal library. And the stories are still as scary as when I first read them. Why do I think Stephen Gamble is important? Come on. Honestly, the scary stories to tell in the dark series of books are amplified a million times by Stephen Gamble's illustrations, aren't they? This part is going to be a little bit short, though. I will give you that warning. There isn't that much out there about Stephen Gamble. He's a notoriously private person, supposedly. That's kind of word on the street. What I do know is this. Stephen Gamble was born on February 10th of 1943 in Des Moines, Iowa. Stephen's father was the art editor for a magazine and would bring home magazines that inspired very young Stephen to draw. So his parents gave him pencils and paper and let him go at it. Gamble was totally self-taught, and he even said drawing helped him get through tough times at school. So he's kind of a daydreamer type. That's, That's what I'm guessing. After Stephen got out of school, he started off as a commercial freelance artist, but eventually became interested in illustrating children's books. His first job illustrating a children's book was in the year 1973 for a book titled A Nutty Business, written by Ida Chittam. Interestingly enough... Ida Chittam is probably most well-known for a book titled Tales of Terror, which is a collection of short stories based in the Ozark region of the United States and deals with natural and supernatural events. Well, 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 the first book that Stephen Gamble illustrates is by an author of scary stories types of books. Very interesting, yeah. Since A Nutty Business, Gamble has illustrated over 50 books, or 70 books, depending on where you look or who you ask. Currently, Stephen Gamble lives in St. Paul, Minnesota with his wife, Linda. He has an art studio above a restaurant in St. Paul where he goes to draw every day. That's pretty rad. He's still very active with the drawing. and He's 78 years old. That's pretty incredible. In 1976, Gamble illustrated a series of books, starting with one book, that was very simply titled Ghosts. Now, it's not the same Ghosts book that I was talking about by Alvin Schwartz. I want to make sure that's clear. This book, titled Ghosts, was part of a series of books which included Meet the Werewolf and Meet the Vampire. And this is the first time we see Gamble's really, really creepy and intense drawings in action. I did. I found this information on bloodydisgusting.com. Again, a link on this episode's page of the Bobcast website where I have all my research listed. So the illustrations in these three books 
are pure nightmare fuel. There's one picture of like a baby lying in a coffin. Oh my God. Yeah, it's gnarly. And you know, Stephen Gamel has such a signature style of art. You can tell right away who the artist is when you see his work. You're like, oh yeah, that's the guy that did the scary stories drawings, right? Stephen Gamel, if you didn't know his name, but it's so plain that it's his artwork. Which kind of brings me to this point. Why is there no collection of Stephen Gamble's art? He did, like I said, 50 to 70 books with his artwork in it. And I've seen a bunch of it. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible artwork. I know you would agree from the Scary Story series, right? Just mind-blowingly great art. There's no one book with his kind of collected works. I imagine there's probably copyright things with publishers and stuff like that that would prevent that from happening very easily. But, hey, if you're an entrepreneur and you have some money, why don't you talk to me and we'll start working on a book that's a collection of Stephen Gamble's art. I would love to do that. I can round it all up. I can do anything I set my mind to if I really want to. This episode is proof of that. Yeah, it really is. I don't know. I just think Stephen Gamble's art is so impressive. That book is something I would pay like 100 bucks for easily. I would definitely buy that book. With this eerie series, as ghosts and Meet the Werewolf and Meet the Vampire were known, Gamble kind of laid the foundation for the drawings that he would end up doing in the Scary Story series, which inadvertently caused so, so many nightmares in the children of the world for years to come. Someone once said to Stephen that his pictures look like they just happened right before you turned the page which Gamble said left a very lasting impression on him. That feeling of immediacy in his art is palpable, I believe. In reply to that statement, Gamble said this, I've kept that in mind every time I do a book. I try to have that element of surprise and fun in every drawing. This is why I never do any sketches beforehand or plan ahead. My desire is that it happens for me in much the same way it happens to whoever will be looking at the book. When I'm working on the book... It's for me and for you. When the book is done, it's mostly for you. Does it work? Only you can say. And that was a quote directly from Stephen Gamble from a webpage called Through the Looking Glass, which is a children's book review site. I'm just going to say this now to get it out of the way because this is like the third time I've mentioned it. And I don't want to have to keep saying this. Any of my research, I will put links on this episode's page of the Bobcast website so you can see all those sources. You can check them out if you'd like to. I'm not going to mention Wikipedia because Wikipedia kind of lays the foundation for me and then I go from there in some ways. So one more thing about Stephen Gamble. Before he would sign on to do the illustrations for a book, he'd ask to read the manuscript and make sure that his art was a good fit for the book. It's claimed he did just that for the scary stories to tell in the dark series. And here we are today with all those really crazy, nightmarish illustrations in the three original Scary Stories books. Steven, I would say, yes, your illustrations worked very, very well in the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series. Maybe a little too well, I would say. The Stephen Gamble illustrations were replaced in a re-release of the Scary Story series in the year 2011 for the 30th anniversary of those books, Brett Helquist was the new artist, and I'm sorry, Brett. <sighs> not bad work. I don't want to criticize your art. That's not really my policy of criticizing people's art. But those illustrations are not nearly as scary as the Stephen Gamble illustrations. Not even close. So, 
By the year 2017, HarperCollins, the publisher of the Scary Stories books, reverted back to the original Stephen Gamble artwork. That was more or less due to public outcry over the replacement of the original artwork with the new stuff. And I actually have the original editions of Scary Stories 1 and 3 and a newer printing of number 2. The only version of the books I have with the replacement artwork is Scary Stories number 1, and I will testify it pales in comparison. That's all I'm going to say. It's not that it's bad. It's just not nearly as good or frightening. And that's kind of my whole point in talking about Stephen Gamble. His art makes these books so much better. I would even venture to say his art makes the books. Without his art, they are not the same at all. Okay, let's hear a song before we get to part two. And we're going to talk about some of the stories from the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books in part two. The song coming up is titled The Girl Who Stood on a Grave. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's one of the scary stories to tell in the dark. This is a perfect way for you to get in the mood for some scary stories action coming right up. Lights in the dead of the night to see thee sleeping in bed with thoughts so unclear, cause his smirk has a smear with a freshness of fresh tasting blood. And we'll make a map and we'll point out the land. She's got a heart made of iron and a head full of stone. That's given her guilt That never should take her this long To look through his eyes And realize that the dead have their own agenda And his hands are a bag of leather that's cracked And his kisses are spiders that found a new home She's the girl who stood on a In the dead of the night To see if she's sleeping in fetters And I'm happy for her Cause she finally felt fear Without a bucket of water or minnows And she gets to be cold And never grow old Except for the flesh that's bound to decay The girl who stood on a grave 
midnight games Like hide and go seek or the candy man But please hear the song of the bravest of all Of the girl who stood on a grave This is Hannah Healy, Bob's sister-in-law and gluten-free blogger at HealyEatsReal.com. Got to get my shameless plug in there. Uh, So yeah, I used to read this book when I was a kid and it totally freaked me out and created lasting effects, shall I say, from some of the stories. I think that one of the first things that comes to mind, I remember when I was really young, I saw a hearse on the road, and I think I was just like in the car with my parents, and I just thought it was funny looking. So I was like, ha ha, look at that car, it looks so crazy. And then my dad was like, oh yeah, that's a hearse. And I was like, huh, okay. And then I think like shortly after that, I heard the hearse song and the first line is don't you ever laugh as a hearse go by for you will be the next to die and i heard that and i was like oh my god i laughed at that hearse so like i'm gonna die and i think i was probably like seven years old or something like i really thought i was gonna die there for a little bit spoiler clearly i did not die so that's good The other thing I remember from this book is there was a story, I think it was in this one, it may have been in the other book because the guy wrote another book as well. The story is basically that this woman is driving home at night, late at night, and uh, this car comes up behind her and starts like flashing its lights and honking at her and is just like following her home and she's getting really freaked out like this, there's some crazy driver that has road rage and like wants to kill me or something and is following me and flashing their lights at me and honking at me and finally gets to like a house nearby or something and you know runs out of the car into the house and is like freaking out and then I don't know exactly the story but somehow they talked to the person that was in the car that was flashing their lights at her and they said No, I wasn't me, like, you know, trying to get after you. There was someone in the backseat of your car with a knife. And every time they'd, you know, raise up their arm to try to, you know, stab you, then I'd honk the horn and flash the lights and they'd go back down. And that's, like, why I was doing it. And so ever since I heard that story, like, I always think about that, like, driving in the car alone. And I think even into adulthood, I used to drive this like minivan Toyota Sienna I called it Betty White because it was white it had tons of room in the back and I'd always be driving by myself and there's like two rows of seats in the back and so whenever I'd be driving at night or whenever I'd go into the car at night like I legit would check the back seats to make sure there wasn't like a murderer back there (laughs) and always think about that when I'm driving at night so yes those stories scarred me. Welcome back and welcome to part two of the scary stories to tell in the dark episode. This part, we're going to talk about some of my favorite and some of the most memorable stories to me. 
If you've read the books, I'm sure there are some stories that really have stuck with you through the years, especially if you read the stories when you were a kid. Some of the stories are scary, some are funny, some are just kind of weird and creepy. I picked one story from each book to talk about, plus at the very end of this, I'm going to retell one of the stories as I heard this one when I was a kid. Yes, the last story is a pretty common urban legend that's been around at least since the 1950s, and this particular story is in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Volume 1. You're going to want to keep all your prosthetic limbs in place for this story. Yes, you really are. The first story we're going to talk about is Wait Till Martin Comes, from the first book in the Scary Stories series. Oh, Wait Till Martin Comes. It's a funny story. It's not really that scary. It is a little bit, but it's more funny than anything else. It's creepy, definitely creepy, but I would, again, say much funnier than it is scary. Now, I do want to take a quick side path here, though. The stories in all the books are divided into sections. For example, in Volume 1, or Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the first section of the book is devoted to jump stories or jump scare stories. These stories are supposed to be told to an audience, where at the very end... You're supposed to pick out a member of the audience and scare them, right? The golden arm type of story where normally some kind of body part is taken from something or someone, a dead body, like a statue, something like that. And the owner of the item of whatever item, body part or whatever it is, comes back from the grave or the statue comes to life looking for this stolen body part or item. I use the golden arm reference as an example for this type of story because it's been around for a long, long time. In the actual golden arm story, a person with an artificial limb, which was made out of gold, dies and is buried. Somebody digs up the body to steal the valuable arm. The armless corpse rises from the grave and seeks out this very unfortunate grave robber by walking around saying, Who has my arm? Finally, the arm-stealing grave robber is found, and the corpse yells out at the very end of the story, You have it! And that's the thing with the story. You're supposed to build up the suspense with the audience all the way through the story, and at the very end, grab somebody and yell, You have it! Jump scares. There you go. In Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the first volume, after the jump scare part, there's a section all about ghosts and ghost stories, there's a section devoted to just kind of generally scary and creepy stories. There's a section about weird and scary urban legends. And the last part is devoted to creepy and also funny stories. Wait Till Martin Comes is in that very last funny section of the book. And it is a very funny story. The story kind of goes like this. In my own words, I am not reading it from the book, by the way. An old man is out walking around and it starts storming and raining. The old man sees an abandoned house and goes inside to take shelter from the storm. He lights a fire and gets comfortable. Promptly, he falls asleep. The old man wakes up and sees a cat sitting next to the fire purring, and he thinks, oh, what a nice cat, what a nice kitty. He falls back asleep. The old man wakes up again, and this time there's another cat in the house. This other cat is as big as a wolf. This wolf cat says, and yeah, it does talk, shall we do it now? To which the smaller cat says, No, wait till Martin comes. The old man thought he was dreaming, falls back asleep, and then opens his eyes again, and there's a third cat there. This cat is as big as a tiger. The third cat says, 
Shall we do it now? To which the other two cats say, No, wait till Martin comes. The old man freaks out, run out of the house, and yells back at the cats. When you see Martin, tell him I couldn't wait. There you go. <laughs> that is actually pretty funny, right? I appreciate that story very much. I love that story. Thanks to Alvin Schwartz's exhaustive notes on sources for this story, we know Martin is an old folktale that was told in the southeastern United States, primarily by people in the black community. You gotta love the notes and sources that Schwartz listed for everything. He was so thorough. It's ridiculous. For our next story, we're gonna talk about a tale called One Sunday Morning from More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark or book two of the series. One Sunday Morning falls under the ghost story category and it's pretty terrifying, I think. I really do think it's scary. This is how it goes. There was a woman who usually went to church every Sunday. One Sunday, she woke up to the sound of church bells that were ringing, and she thought, oh no, I'm late for church. So she got up, rushed out of bed, ran out of the house, and headed straight to the church. The streets were totally deserted. On the way to church, it was pitch black outside, but that was the time of year when it was dark outside when she went to church anyways. She just kind of thought everyone in town was already at the church. She cut through a graveyard as a shortcut on the way to the church. Well, that's a little symbolic for what's coming up. The woman got inside of the church and it was totally packed with people, but they were all people she didn't recognize, except one person in the church, a lady who was named Josephine. The thing is, uh, Josephine had died a month earlier. The woman's eyes adjusted to the gloom in the church. She noticed everyone in the church was dead, skeletal or rotting or something like that. She was essentially attending a church service for the dead. The corpse of Josephine turned and looked at her and told her, you better leave right after the blessing at the end of the service if you want to get out of here alive. So the priest said the blessing, their pastor or whatever, and she got up, ran out of the church, and was pursued by the church-going dead who were angry at her intrusion of their unholy church service. The woman made it outside the church and escaped the clutching skeletal hands of the dead just as the sun was coming up. On her way home, she thought, well, maybe she had dreamt the whole thing. Until later that day, when her friends brought over her coat and her hat that she had worn to church that morning and dropped at some point, and that coat and hat had been torn to shreds. Ooh, yeah, that's pretty creepy, huh? Alvin Schwartz says of One Sunday Morning that he first heard the tale when he was a student at Northwestern University in the 1950s, though it appears the story has its roots in an old French folktale, which was first recorded in 1890. In the French folktale version, which is titled The Spectre's Mass, the main character's name is Josephine, and the name of the recently dead person inside of the church, her name was Jean. The Spectre's Mass was from the Brittany region of France and is rumored to have actually taken place. It's supposed to be a real story from the year 1831. I think it's kind of more of a cautionary tale, honestly, because the girl Josephine, in the French version, is habitually late for church. So one Sunday, she woke up really early, like at midnight, to go to church because she got tired of people giving her a hard time about being late for church all the time. 
When she got to the church, it wasn't a service for the living, just like in the Scary Stories version of the tale. Also in the Spectre's Mass, Josephine's dead grandfather appears and tells her to get out of the church, not this other dead woman. We've got one more story to analyze from the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books. This one's from book three, Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones. And the name of the story is Just Delicious. Yes, a weird tale. This <laughs> this story is gross. I mean, yeah, yuck. It's kind of about food in some ways. And the type of food the story's talking about is liver. Uh, blah. I hate liver. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. This story does take a strange twist, though, and it goes a little something like this. There was a man named George who loved to eat. Every day, he closed down his business for two hours to go home for lunch. Besides being gluttonous, George was also a bully, especially to his wife, Mina. George picked up a pound of liver on his way home for lunch one day, because liver was his favorite, and he told his wife to cook the liver for him for dinner later that night. Mina absolutely did everything George asked her to do, because she was scared of what he would do if she did not do as he asked. While they ate lunch that day, Mina was telling George about a woman who had recently died and was currently on display at the church right next door to their house, where absolutely anyone could walk in and see her lifeless body. George didn't care at all what his wife had to say, so he kept stuffing his face, ignored her, said goodbye, I have to go back to work. As soon as George left, Mina started preparing the liver and took a couple bites to make sure that it tasted just right for him. The liver tasted so good, Mina ended up eating the whole piece of liver. Terrified of George's response to the missing and what was George's favorite dinner, Mina struggled to think of where she could get a replacement piece of liver that late in the day. And then she remembered the dead woman lying in the church next door. Unguarded, easy to get to. George did get liver for dinner that night, but when he asked Mina why she wasn't eating with him, she just said she wasn't hungry. The couple went to bed later that night, and soon they heard a faraway voice of an old woman asking, Where's my liver? The voice got closer and closer until finally it was right next to the couple's bed. Where's my liver? Mina blurted out. He has it and pointed straight at George. The room went pitch black and George screamed and screamed and screamed. Okay, that's pretty gross. Also pretty scary, isn't it? It really is. Alvin Schwartz says in the notes of Scary Stories 3 that he first heard this story in the Northeast in the 1940s. According to my research, this story is an old folktale from the New York area, which the story sometimes has a different ending. In one version of the story... Mina apparently dreams of the old woman calling for her liver, wakes up, and very fearfully confesses to George what she did. She fed him the liver from the corpse of this old woman. George is absolutely terrified of ghosts, thinking that that ghost was going to come after him for what she did. He kills Mina. He cuts out her liver and sneaks over to the church and pops it back in to the old dead woman. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. I like the ending in the Scary Stories version better just because there's justice for George, who is apparently a piece of crap, right? Now it's time for the Bobcast telling of a story. 
and the final story of this part of the episode. I'm going to tell you a story. Yeah, a story that's in the very first Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark book. This is an urban legend that dates back to the 1950s. And actually, this story gained a lot of notoriety in the 1960s because someone talked about it in a Dear Abby advice column. A young girl wrote into Dear Abby, and she said she was warning people not to park at Lover's Lane type of places. This young woman had heard that making out at Lover's Lanes when you're parked could be very hazardous to your health, and she said she wanted to warn others not to do it. Well, let's hear the story as it was told to me, because this story actually was told to me when I was a teenager or a kid in the 1980s. Here's the Bobcast version of The Hook. The Elfin Forest area of northern San Diego County has a long history of being haunted. Some of the more common sightings are of a lady in white, a ghostly horse, even gnomes and fairies who live in the ancient oak trees of the area. When I was a teenager in the 1980s, the danger and mystique of the area grew considerably due to the legend of a murderous, escaped mental hospital patient who was said to have been lurking amongst the trees of Elfin Forest, seeking out his next victim. What made this maniac even more threatening? The legend that much more terrifying? He was said to have killed his victims with his prosthetic right hand, a hook. The story I was told goes something like this. A teenage couple were out on a date and went out to Elfin Forest looking for a place to park and maybe make out. The teenage boy who was driving the car noticed the engine running rough as they approached the area where they were going to park, so he pulled over and shut off the engine. The girl said, What's wrong? What's going on? The boy replied, I think I ran out of gas. The boy tried to start the car and the engine cranked and cranked but would not start. The boy told the girl he'd walk to town, try and find some gas. She should wait for him in the car. The boy got out of the car and started the long walk into town. The girl, now alone and in the dark, turned on the radio in the car to help keep the darkness of that pitch black area at bay. There are no street lights around and no other cars pass the young couple on their way to the parking spot. Soon after turning on the radio, the girl heard a noise outside the car. She figured, well, maybe it's just a low-hanging oak branch scraping the side of the car on the overgrown and lonely road. Except the noise was getting closer to the passenger side of the car. Closer and closer until the girl could make out the shadowy and faceless form of a large man was prying at the door handle of the car with what appeared to be a The girl panicked. She quickly slid over to the driver's seat of the car. Come on, come on, come on! She cried as she tried to start the car. Finally, the car started, and the girl sped off down the lonely, dark, and now dreadful road. She went straight to the police station a few miles away. When she got out of the car and began to run inside of the police station, she turned to look back at the car. There, hanging off of the passenger side door handle, where the girl had been sitting earlier in the night, was a bloody hook. 
the teenage boy was never seen again. Among the living, that is. They found his body the next morning, a mile down the road from where he had parked with the girl. He was dead of puncture wounds that appeared to have been made with a curved and pointed object. Maybe the wounds were caused by a hook. There it was, the Bobcast version of the Hook story from Folklore, and also it appears in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It's funny, if I remember this right, that story was told to me by someone who was being kind of serious about it at the time. It was like this, like, don't go out to Elfin Forest. It's dangerous. I heard there's this, like, madman on the loose that's killing people, and he has a hook for a hand. I'm not kidding. I don't know. Maybe that person was messing with me, or maybe they were serious. It is kind of hazy. It was like 35 years ago. I definitely do remember who told me the story, and I'll say this, that person was not a very smart person. So they might actually have believed what they were telling me. I don't know. Give me a break. It was a long time ago, right? Elfin Forest, though, I will say this. That place is a real place that I mentioned in that story, That's where I heard this hook murderer person was roaming around. And that place is haunted as can be to this day. There was a point where I was supposed to go out there with a band and do a little paranormal investigation interview kind of thing. And we totally chickened out at the last minute and decided not to go. Uh, It was raining too. I'll say that. Yeah, that makes that makes us all look a little bit better. I'm not going to mention the band by name Sad Girls Club, but it happened. It is a very scary place, I will say that. Well, next up, we're going to hear the last song of this episode before we move on to part three and the final part of the episode. This song is called The Wendigo. Stay tuned. Her smile are the things you hate 
First of all, Bob, I would like to thank you for posting a picture of that book for giving me flashbacks of being so scared of a book I couldn't even open it. I can still see the drawing of the girl with the long hair who's like hunched over, who's maybe part dog or something. And then I also remember the story of the guy or the girl who had like a spider lay eggs in the face. So yeah, thank you for giving me nightmares once again. Welcome back. This is part three and the final chapter of this episode. This part's going to be kind of short and sweet. Then after that, you can go dig out your copies of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and kind of relive the magic that this episode has awoken inside of you. Uh, hopefully, this episode did awaken or rekindle your desire to read these books. That's my hope, anyway. For this final chapter, we're going to talk about the controversy that surrounded the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series of books, thanks to various PTA organizations, 
concerned parents, and some very nefarious Christian and also right-wing groups from all over the United States. Let me say this up front. The Scary Stories documentary covers the controversy, the kind of attempts of banning the book, removing the book from libraries, that concerned parents' angle very, very well. I would definitely recommend watching the documentary for a much more in-depth look at this aspect of the scary stories to tell in the dark story and books. Very amazing. The documentary even brings out one of the book's main detractors to meet with the son of Alvin Schwartz at the very end of that documentary, and they discuss their concerns over the books. Well, she had the concerns over the books. Alvin Schwartz's son really didn't. Her concerns were based on the fact that she thought they were just too scary for kids. Sandy Vrabble is the name of this PTA mom or former PTA mom. She's much older now. She was kind of at the center of this issue back in the 1990s. She wanted the books removed from elementary school libraries because, as I said, she just thought the books were way too scary for little kids. And I will say this, to her credit, Sandy Vrabble says in the documentary... She didn't want the book outright just banned. She just wanted it taken out of elementary school libraries. There's another example of another concerned parent of why the book should be removed from school libraries. And that was because of the story Wonderful Sausage from book two or More Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. That story is about a butcher who uses humans in his sausages. And they're delicious sausages, supposedly. I do need to say that human meat in the story Wonderful Sausage was supposed to be very, very delicious. Hmm. Makes me a little curious. No, not really. I'm not a cannibal. Now, Sandy Vrabel did mention the story Just Delicious, which we talked about in part two, when she came to the conclusion that little kids shouldn't be reading the book. And she said that that story was just sick. She did say one thing in the documentary that really had me kind of scratching my head. Sandy Vrabel blamed a rise in violent crime on the scary stories to tell in the dark series of books. She also blamed other forms of media like video games. Well, wrong. She's completely wrong on that angle. Today, the violent crime rate has dropped 51% since 1991. Here's some real statistics that absolutely prove her wrong. Property crimes since 1991 have dropped 43%. This is from a study that was done in 2015, so it's six years old, but it's close enough, I think. The 1960s and the 1970s, the violent crime rate rose 126% between 1960 and 1970, and that was years before scary stories came along and even video games. So you cannot blame scary stories to tell in the dark for any kind of rise in violent crime whatsoever because it's simply not true. I think it's a matter of perception. We have a very sensationalist coverage of violent crime in the media. That's partly to blame for sure. I also think nowadays people go on social media and because some idiot made a meme about crime or a criminal or something like that, that changes people's perception about what level of crime we are a victim of in society in these days. Worse than ever. Things are worse than they've ever been when, in fact, things, you know, crime-wise are better than they've ever been. Safer 
You can't go around blaming a book, a movie, a TV show, a video game, anything like that for any kind of rise in crime. I don't think. Not at all. That's not how it works. Socioeconomic factors? Oh, yeah, definitely. Whatever it is, Sandy Vrabel, you are incorrect. Absolutely incorrect. Well, what do you think? Do you think the Scary Story series of books are too scary for, like, a seven-year-old? Are they too intense, too gnarly? I personally don't think so. I feel like kids are going to hear these types of stories anywhere. Someplace, they're going to hear them. On the playground, from a friend at, like, a sleepover. I mean, every time a kid goes to Sunday school, they hear a story about a guy who was tortured for three days before he died. I mean, when you think about it, the Bible is the original scary stories to tell in the dark. That's a hell of a connection that I just made there, isn't it? But it is. The Bible's a messed up book. Like I said, kids are going to hear it. If a kid wants to read and kind of explore these creepy, scary, morbid stories, more power to them. I mean, I know I grew up loving creepy, scary, and morbid things. Halloween's always been my favorite holiday. The Haunted Mansion was always my favorite ride at Disneyland and Disney World. The Monsters, Groovy Ghoulies, those were my favorite TV shows when I was a little kid. I will say I saw The Exorcist when I was like seven or eight, and I wouldn't recommend anybody letting their little kid watch a movie like that because that movie really messed me up very bad for a long time, really messed with my sleep. But the stories in Scary Stories, they're just not that scary. I think they're very tame in comparison to something like The Exorcist, right? They're mostly just folk tales, urban legends, and they've been told for years and years and years. So it's nothing new. I do believe people love to be scared, especially little kids. Those are my thoughts. You're welcome. The last thing I'm going to say about the controversy surrounding the scary stories to tell in the dark books is some information from the American Library Association and their Office for Intellectual Freedom. The Scary Stories series is listed by the ALA as being the most challenged series of books from the 1990s and the seventh most challenged in the early 2000s. The Harry Potter books took the place of the Scary Stories books in the early 2000s because it was something about Harry Potter teaching kids how to be witches, uh, teaching them about witchcraft. And, and wow, yeah, no, that's not how those books work at all. Scary Stories did make the ALA's list of challenged books once again in 2012. That was the last time it was on those books. And God, these people just don't give up. Well, apparently nowadays, books that have LGBTQ plus themes make the American Library Association's list of challenged books more than anything else. You know, because apparently people don't want their kids catching the gay or something like that. And that's kind of an example of what we're up against. Censorship-wise, the mentality of the people who want certain books banned from school libraries. You don't want your kids to learn about gay people? Why? That doesn't make any sense to me. You don't want them to learn about other kids' parents where there might be a situation where it's two dads or two moms? I'm telling you, kids are smart, and they'll figure it out on their own one way or the other, or they're going to go based on schoolyard gossip. It's much better if they learn about something like that in a book from the library or from you. As a parent, the best thing for you to do 
is explain to your kids about LGBTQ plus issues. And it only helps that there will be books about that in a school library. Don't ban them. Go to your church and shut the hell up. That's what I'm trying to say. Leave everybody else alone because we don't need your false sense of morality and outrage over this stuff telling us what we can and cannot teach our children. That's all I have to say about that. This really became an editorial more than anything else, didn't it? Very opinion-based. Well, that's what you're here for, is to listen to me talk, I guess, in some ways. Unless if you came for the music, which you got a great dose of that in this episode, too. Because the Voodoo Sister is absolutely amazing. But yeah, I just kind of went off for a little bit. I just think that when censorship or any kind of banning or anything like that comes from a Christian viewpoint, it's coming from a bad place. It's coming from views that were essentially made in the Dark Ages, and the Dark Ages is where they should stay. The end. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Bobcast. There you go. This one is done. Yes, that was a really fun episode, actually. There was a lot that went into it. It was a lot of work, but it was really fun. I really love the part of this episode for my research where I went through and I read all three of the scary stories to tell in the dark series of books twice in the last like two weeks. I read through all those books twice It got those books are so good. They're so amazing. They're as scary, creepy and awesome as they have ever been. I would really highly recommend you revisit all those books if you can. Well, it's time for some thank yous and then I'm going to let you go. Thanks so much to Sharice Williams, Hannah Healy, Jessica Fuller, and Megan Rossetti for sharing your stories of how scary stories to tell in the dark affected you. I really appreciate you all taking the time to record your stories and send them to me. Thank you so very much. Thanks to Keith and Voodoo Sister for the music. This episode would not have been nearly as good without your songs. They fit the subject so well. Links to Voodoo Sisters Bandcamp page will be on this episode's page on the Bobcast website, which is IWantAPartyWithBob.com. Thanks to Plan 9 Alehouse for the beer, or Bob Fuel. That's kind of what Plan 9 Alehouse's beer is, just straight Bob Fuel. Thanks to Carolyn Morissette for another edition of the Celluloid Catacombs. And what a rad contribution to this episode that was. Remember, look for more from Carolyn monthly here on the Bobcast in the celluloid catacombs. I do want to say thanks to Cody Merrick and the Scary Stories documentary for inspiration for this episode. I would say you should definitely watch the Scary Stories documentary. It's truly great. Cody and everyone who worked on and made that Scary Stories documentary did an insanely great job. And I actually watched it twice. You can get it on IMDb TV via Amazon Prime. It's also available on Tubi all the major video-on-demand platforms, and on DVD. Check it out. It's rad. As with all the other sources I used to make this episode, there will be links on this episode's page of the Bobcast website, but the website for the Scary Stories Doc is simply scarystoriesdoc, D-O-C, that is, dot com. Check it out. Thank you for listening. Please remember, subscribe, rate, and review the Bobcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, please consider joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash I want to party with Bob for a streamlined version of this episode and more amazing and awesome content. Thank you so much for listening to the I want to party with Bob Bobcast. You turn around, you turn-